This is KMTT. Tuesday, Parshat HaShavua, will be delivered by Rav Alex Israel. Shavua Tov. This week we begin a new book, Sefer Vayikra. And uh, for many people, opening Sefer Vayikra is a difficult thing to do. With a break of two millennia since we last brought Korbanot, uh, this is a world which is unfamiliar, uninviting, and not easy to uh, connect with. And therefore it is my duty as a teacher to uh, attempt to bring that world, bring the world of Korbanot into a mode of reference with which we can actually connect. And that's what we're going to try and do today. We're going to take some uh, initial steps into the... Um, <clears throat> different korbanot described in this parsha, and try and give them some frame of reference which can give them an anchor in our religious feelings, our religious terminology, in the sort of emotions and feelings which we associate with religion nowadays. I think the first uh, comment at the outset that has to be made is um, to use the word korbanot, in English, we talk about a sacrifice. However, um, sacrifice has a very different connotation to the word korban. And uh, you can find the following lines in the commentary of Rav Shintra of Baal Hirsch on this topic. The, entrance, the, the beginning to the parsha. I'll quote from Rav Hirsch. He says the following. It is most regret- regrettable that we have no word which really reproduces the idea which lies in the expression korban. The unfortunate use of the term sacrifice implies the giving up of something that is of value to oneself for the benefit of another, or of having to do without something of value. Ideas which are not only absent from the nature and idea of a korban, but are diametrically opposed to it. Karev means to approach, to come near, and so to get into a close relationship with somebody. This at once most positively gives the idea of the object and purpose of the process of Korban as the attainment of a higher sphere of life. The person desires that something of himself should come closer to God, and that is what his Korban is. End of quote. In other words, what Rav Hirsch is saying is that Korban is all about kirva, closeness to God, and uh, we somehow have to see if we can probe the korbanot to see how they can um, facilitate that closeness that we're looking for. Now, probably one of the most famous perspectives on korbanot, one of the most famous uh, attempts at Tameh HaMitzvot, when it comes to Korbanot, is that of the Rambam. <clears throat> the Rambam in Moronavuchim, he has a number of passages where he deals with Korbanot, but the Rambam in Moronavuchim um, suggests that Korbanot is some sort of concession, concession to human weaknesses. Um, if I quote a little bit from the Guide to the Perplexed, it is impossible for man to go suddenly from one extreme to the, to the other. The nature of man will not allow him suddenly to discontinue everything to which he has been accustomed. Now God sent Moses to make 
the Israelites a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. But the general mode of worship in which the Israelites were brought up consisted in sacrificing animals in temples containing images to bow down to those images and to burn incense before them. It was in accordance with the wisdom and plan of God um, to discontinue all these modes of worship for to obey such a commandment would have been contrary to the nature of man <clears throat> who generally clings to thing which he has used. And therefore what the Rambam explains is that um, God would like us to give up all of those things sacrificing animals, containing images. What he did was he outruled images completely and we were still allowed to sacrifice animals but they were limited. They were limited to one particular place, one particular temple. Uh, we weren't allowed to have multiple places of worship and what we were allowed to do in every single place was to pray, to offer tefillot, to do mitzvot like tzitzit and mezuzah and tefillin and uh, that was the idea behind the Korbanot. And I think one has to agree that this uh, perspective is highly derogatory of the uh, whole order of uh, Korbanot. And seeing the fact that the Torah spends huge volumes of psukim on Korbanot, um, this is a, an incredibly bediavad. Um, an incredible, incredibly negative philosophy. It essentially says that God would do away with Korbanot in a second, however, human beings uh, needed it because that was a standard way of sacrificing. And maybe we can add that according to the logic of the Rambam, if that is indeed true, nowadays that we have learned to do away with Korbanot, uh, why would we ever want to reinstate them? Be Mashiach. The Mashiach comes, uh, according to, simply to the logic of this statement in Moranavuchim, where God says he ideally would like to do away with sacrifices completely, um, <laughs> then we should uh, not reinstate them at all. This isn't the only comment of the Rambam. Uh, the Rambam in, in a different section, in, in Moranivuchim, in the third section, chapter 46, goes even further and suggests that the reason why we slaughter particular animals, uh, we slaughter uh, livestock, which is uh, cows or bulls on the one hand, and then sheep and, uh, and goats, is because these were actually worshipped by other cultures. And what we have to do is, we have to cleanse ourselves of the idea that, uh, you know, he says that the, the um, Indians won't, won't touch a cow, and the Egyptians would never ever slaughter a sheep. And, and therefore we particularly slaughter those animals to show, to repudiate the Avodah to reject the Avodah the idolatry of other cultures. Now there are, as I say, a few problems with this. Number one, the Rambam seems not to give any positive dimension of Korbanot at all. And uh, as I say, this is incredibly disturbing when we look at the evidence from the Torah. But the other problem is that the Rambam contradicts himself, because when we look at uh, Mishneh Torah, the Rambam's halachic code, the Rambam there in Hilchot Me'ilah, um, relates to Korbanot as a chok, as a statute. And he warns people very, very carefully to be cautious in the way they treat laws that they don't understand. One of the classic examples of this is going to be the sacrifices. He says, uh, be very, very careful when you don't understand something, not to treat it lightly, 
not to think about it as we do in secular matters, that if, if we can't understand it and it has no logic, we should uh, reject it. He said that is not at all the case. And he, in that passage, it's, it's in Hilchot Me'ilah, the last uh, halacha, perachet, halachachet, he, he then makes a, an amazing statement. He says, All korbanot are statutes, are part of the statutes. And Amrucha Chamim, the rabbis say, Our rabbis say that the world only remains in place, the only world only stands because of the service of the sacrifices. Now this is the same Rambam who claims that if God could could manage, he would do away with uh, Korbanot. And therefore, the Rambam is very difficult to probe, and um, when people turn around sometimes and say that according to the Rambam, Korbanot are unnecessary, I always say to them, yes, that's fine about the Moran Avuchim, but uh, what about Mishnah Torah? In Mishnah Torah, the Rambam says that the whole world exists only by virtue of the Korbanot. And therefore I'd like to um, not focus on the Rambam's thought after having mentioned him and try and look into other avenues. One of the commentators who was particularly agitated by the way the Rambam related to Karbanot was Nachmanides, the Ramban. And the, the Ramban, you can tell that he was really upset by the Rambam's approach in uh, in the guide in Moranavuchim. He says, The Rambam's words are absolute nonsense. You take a great question and you answer it with a silly answer. And worse than that, according to the Rambam, you make God's table, God's altar, as a disgusting place. What is the altar for? It is just to reject stupid philosophies, mistaken ideas. Ramban makes a wonderful case to explain how the Ramban can be wrong. He goes simply back into Tanakh and he says, well, take a look. Who brought the first uh, Korbanot? It was Kain and Hevel. Well, were Kain and Hevel trying to reject, to repudiate, to keep away from idolatrous ideas. There was no idolatry in the days of Cain and Hevel. And indeed it says with Cain, with, with, with Hevel um, how much his korban was, was received by God. And even more than that, uh, in the case of Noah, where Noah brings korbanot after he comes out of the Teva, and uh, there it says how God smelt the sweet smells. He said to himself, I will no longer curse the land because of man. I will no longer curse man. In other words, says the Ramban, we see Cain, we see Hevel, there's no Avodah Zara, there's no idolatry around. They offer sacrifices. We see Noah coming out of the ark. There are, there, there's no idolatry. And they all bring sacrifices. And God has the most positive, wonderful things to say about their about their offerings. So he says the Rambam has to be wrong. But what is the philosophy according to the Rambam? <clears throat> 
The Ramban um, adopts quite a severe approach in his opening remarks to Sefer Baikra. And he claims that um, the purpose of Karbanot is the following. He says, because the actions of human beings start in your thoughts and then they move to your speech and to your actions, God commanded that when a person sins and will bring a an offering, he should rest his hands upon it in correspondence to the action and he should confess which reflects speech, and he should burn the innards of the animal, which are the, the the tools of the thoughts and desires, and he says you should burn all the limbs of the animal, which represents a reflection of human limbs, and in fact he should throw his blood on the altar, which corresponds to the blood of the person bringing the sacrifice, so that he should realize the following, that because he sinned to God, with his body and soul, it is fitting that his own blood should be spilt. If only it was not for the mercy of God, who had given him a reprieve and allowed him to bring a korban, whose blood would be instead of his blood, whose life would be instead of his life, and whose limbs would be instead of the limbs of the sinner. This is an incredibly powerful piece in the Ramban where the Ramban is claiming that when a person watches the animal burnt on the altar, he should feel himself almost almost burnt up himself. And this powerful philosophy says that karbanot are meant to be traumatic. Karbanot are meant to represent an upheaval in our lives. Karbanot are meant to shake a person to their core. And that, that is the idea that we're dealing with here. Now this is a powerful philosophy because it really explains and it goes to the heart of one of the most problematic sides of Korbanot which is why God wants us to take life even if it is animal life in as, as Korban. And, and what the Ramban is explaining here is that the whole idea of the offering is to go to the essence of life and to ask ourselves why are we here and what are we here for and whether we're living up to uh, the expectations and the standards which God sets for us. However, there is one small problem with the Ramban. Nachmanli's explanation works very, very well for the sinner. The sinner needs to feel as if he is unworthy, as if he deserves to die, maybe, and that God is giving him the opportunity for another chance, and he needs to feel the upheaval of, of the sacrificial moment. And here it really is a sacrificial moment. However, this only works for the Karban Khatat, what about other korbanot? What about when somebody brings a korban todah, the opportunity to say thank you to God? Uh, what about a korban mincha? What about a flower offering? All of these don't seem to match the um, the way that the Ramba, Ramban has framed the whole ideology of korbanot. So where does this leave us? Let me try and uh, summarize what we've set up to this point. We've said that a korban aims to give us kirva, closeness to God. We've dealt with the Rambam, Maimonides, who in his guide gives very negative explanations for korbanot, whereas in his Mishnah Torah says, well, you know, there's no real way to understand this. This is a statute. And we're a bit confused about the Ramban, about the Rambam, sorry, Maimonides. And we mentioned Nachmanides' critique of the Rambam, 
who says that from, from Tanakh we see that Karbanot are, are highly recommended, that they have a wonderful effect on God, that they're beautifully received by Hashem. And he tries to explain the way that the sinner sees the animal as a surrogate for himself. But as I've said, this doesn't explain the entire range of korbanot that we are able to bring. So how are we going to understand the, the, the offerings that we can bring? I would like to introduce um, some mode of understanding by, first of all, making a statement about the way we are to see korbanot. I think it is quite clear, and I hope it is clear to everybody who is listening to this shiur, that God doesn't need our animals, God doesn't need our gifts. That is stated time and time again by the the different Nevi'im, the different prophets, who, be it Shmuel or be it Yishayahu or whoever, who all say God doesn't need our sacrifices. So why do we have to bring korbanot? And I'd like to uh, state from the outset the korbanot is, in truth, a language of symbols. It is a symbolic language. It is a world of gestures. Unless we think the gestures should be taken lightly, uh, they aren't. We, we as human beings live um, within a society where norms and codes are exactly the language through which we express meaning. And in order to understand some of this sort of sim- symbolism and what symbolism means, I'm going to try and use maybe what might seem as a flippant example, but it isn't flippant at all, it isn't to be taken lightly. I'm just using this as an example of of how in society we can uh, use symbols in order to express very, very heartfelt emotions. The example I'd like to give is, is, is an example of flowers. Flowers, yes, flowers which grow, flowers which we cut, which we buy um, for somebody for Shabbat. The world of uh, giving flowers has a whole language in its own. Let me try and uh, elaborate. If somebody takes uh, poppies and decides to put them into a wreath and takes that wreath and puts it on the grave of the unknown soldier, then they are saying a particular thing. They are saying, I honour you, I salute you. This is uh, one way of using flowers. Let's give a different one. If I'm invited to somebody for Shabbat, I'm going to have a Shabbat meal at somebody's house. I might send flowers, in which case I'm saying, thank you for your hospitality. Maybe I would take the same, uh, could take the same bouquet and send it to somebody who is unfortunately in hospital. And then they would be saying different, something different. They'd be saying, cheer up or get well soon. They'd be saying, I care about you. If I take, uh, if we can imagine a young man who uh, sends 12 red roses to his beloved, he will not be saying, get well soon. He won't be saying, I salute you or I honor you. He won't be saying, thank you for your hospitality for Shabbat. He'll be saying, I love you. And if we can, to try and uh, push home the point, if instead of sending the 12 red roses to his fiancé or whoever it might be, he instead sends a wreath of poppies or whatever it might be, then I think his uh, fiancé might think that something was rather strange. Um, what I mean to say here when I, when, I, when I say that is, well, it's a few things. 
When I go to somebody for Shabbat, I'm not sure they really need my flowers. But we have a, a very strong need to manifest our abstract, ephemeral emotions upon a very tangible, this-worldly object. By giving of an object, by the giving of an object, we convey the feelings that we have and we somehow give them more weight. They have more force. They somehow are able to come down in a real manner, giving form and substance to our inner thoughts. So this is the whole idea of symbolic gestures. It's not that you know a person needs those flowers. It's not that they're going to be remain there forever. They're going to die in a few days. But I have a need to express something, and I need to do it by the giving of an object through something which is here and now a real physical thing. And that's the first thing I, I think we need to say. The second thing, the second point that I want to make is that this act of giving, this symbolic gesture can come in, in many different forms for different sentiments, for different moods, for different states of mind. The object might be sometimes different uh, or possibly the manner of giving, the ceremony, the process might be different. And I think that if we can jump from the world of uh, flowers gestures to the world of Korbanot, we will realize that Korbanot also uh, showcased this as a classic example of this type of symbolic language. And so here I want to try and explain by moving into the Parsha. Parashat Vayikra begins, Parashat Vayikra describes in its five chapters, five classic Korbanot. The first three are self-motivated, or what we call korbanot nadava. Sometimes they can be obligatory, but in, in the classic form as represented in Parashat Vayikra, they are um, something which I choose to do. The first is called the Ola, it is the burnt offering. Then there is the Mincha, which is a mixture of flour and, and oil in some way or another. There are many different ways of, of, of uh, preparing it. And then there is something called a Shlamim, sometimes translated as a peace offering. We will elaborate in a few minutes. Then there are two other korbanot, the korban chatat and the korban asham. These are mandatory. They are korbanot chova. You have to bring them, and you're forced to bring them because you've transgressed, and therefore you have to bring a chatat when you sin and an asham for various different transgressions, which are very carefully delineated and defined. We're going to spend our time looking at uh, the ola and the shlamim, and if we have a few minutes, we'll will add in the mincha. Let's try and explain how the Ola and the Shlamim are, are completely different. The two basic models of the voluntary korban, the korban and dava, are exactly this. The Ola, in which the animal is ole, it goes up, it's entirely consumed on the altar. The Ola is completely burnt, you bring an animal to the mingdash, a live, beating, bleating animal, and you bring it to the Mikdash, it is slaughtered, the whole thing is put on the Mizbeach and burnt to ashes. That is very different from the Shlamim sacrifice. The Shlamim is um, also brought to the Mikdash, the blood and the fat go on the Mizbeach, but the meat is eaten by the owners of the animal, and uh, it is eaten in Yerushalayim, or in the proximity of the Bet Mikdash. 
Now, what I would like to try and do is that we've explained what you do with these, but let's try and understand the symbolism behind them. So let's try and, and, and make an attempt. The Allah, as we said, is completely consumed. It is given over to God in its entirety. And Allah means raised up, it means elevation. So how do we understand this? I, I think it's very clear that the Allah represents a sense of the smallness of man, the sense of uh, what we say on Yom Kippur when we talk about the fact that we are nothing but a fleeting cloud, uh, we are novel, like a dream which which uh, evaporates. Um, life is very fragile and one minute you can have an animal full of life and the next minute it can be brought to, to ashes. And that reminds us that we are indeed also only dust to dust, a far of affair, um, that human life is only there by grace of God. This is a Korban whose mood is the fact that God has enormous power which can sometimes overwhelm and overpower man. The man is in some way helpless and insignificant and only there by grace of God. And therefore when we take the animal and it's fully consumed before Hashem, we are expressing um, this idea of God's majesty and our smallness. It's interesting that the first example of a Korban Olah is the Korban of Noah when he emerges from the Teva into the desolate post-mobile world. And maybe Noah was thinking exactly about this idea about the fragile nature of man, the temporal nature of man, um, and the fact that uh, we really are there by grace of God. This is a relationship of of what I think what we call yura, of awe of God, of fear of God, of man's insignificance. Man is nothing. Man is putting himself down. And uh, that is what is happening here. So, when one wishes to say that one devotes to oneself absolutely, exclusively, entirely, completely to God, um, then we bring in Allah. Shlamim is, is, is completely different. It's from the word shalom. It's from peace. It is eaten in Yerushalayim. Now, of course, uh, how can the owners eat a whole anim animal? I was in a, a wedding some years back where the father of the bride got up. It was, I think, Parshat Vayikra or Parshat Tzav. And he spoke exactly about the Korban Shlamim. And this is what he said at the, at the wedding dinner. He said, I looked at the parsha of the Korban Todah, the Korban Shlamim, and I thought to myself, well, if I had an animal of this particular age, of this particular size, how, how many people would it serve? So I went to the butcher and I said, if I had this animal and these particular cuts and these parts of the animal and I had to serve people, how many people would it serve? And he said, well, I think if you had that amount of meat, it could serve even 150 people. He said, I then went to the baker and I said, if I had this amount of flour, this, um, this volume of flour, how, and I made bread out of it, how many people would it serve? And he said, 150, 180 people. And so the father of the bride said, I began to understand that when, when you had a simcha, when you had, a, I don't know, a graduation, and you had a brit milah, a bar mitzvah, a bat mitzvah, your daughter's wedding, 
you would come to Yerushalayim, you'd hire a Simcha Hall and, and a band, and you would go to the Bet Mikdash in the morning and put on your finery, and you would actually bring the Korman Shlamim to, to the Mikdash. And you would state uh, the fact that you are able to eat a Zevach Shlamim. Zevach means a joint meal with God. You wouldn't just give a Dvar Torah at the meal and say, Oh, thank you to God for bringing us to this moment, Sheikh. You'd actually be able to have God share in the meal, the dam which goes on the Mizbeach, acknowledging God, sharing in God's holy food, having to specially metahar yourself, to purify yourself, to eat from this, from this, on, from God's table. This is a tremendous privilege. It's a privilege that we unfortunately do not have. But the idea is, if we can be so crude as to describe it in human terms, the Shlamim is a joint meal between man and God. And in that regard, it represents a feeling of calm and harmony, of association and relationship between God and man. And this is obviously a, a entirely different attitude. Obviously, uh, we're coming up to, to Pesach in a, in a short time. The Korban Pesach is a Shlamim. And one can imagine the streets of Jerusalem filled with people eating their Korban Pesach, a festive environment, a sense of togetherness between the invitees, but also a togetherness with God. There's no fear, there's no sacrifice, there's joy, there's gratitude, closeness to God. And therefore, uh, when we bring the Korban Pesach, we recite Hallel, we thank God for the kindness that he has given us. In short, the Olah represents man's insignificance in the face of the awe-inspiring, the awesome God, what we call Yirat Hashem, whereas Shlamim represents Ahavat Hashem, the opportunity to have a certain closeness to God, to have a relationship to God. Um, and so I think we can already see the, the notion that these express diametrically opposed Religious sentiments, this is indeed a symbolic language. If I already mentioned the mincha, the mincha is a flower offering, maybe we will end off by looking at the first time that mincha ever comes to, uh, comes, up, comes up in the Torah, and that is indeed in the story of Cain and Hebel. On the surface, it doesn't seem like a particularly positive story. But I think through the story of Cain and Hevel we can have some understanding about what the Mincha is about. Mincha really means a gift. And in many places in Tanakh, when somebody needs to give an, another one a gift, uh, whether it's uh, Yaakov to Esav, whether it's uh, sending a gift to Yosef, the word Mincha is used. Um, frequently it means a gift from a subordinate to somebody who is more powerful. Let's take a look at the lines in Bereshit Perek Dalad. It says, Vayi Hevel Ro'etzon, Hevel was a shepherd, V'kayin haya oved adama, Kayin worked the land, Vayi miketz yamim, it wasn't the end of a year, here the word yamim, it means a year, Vayavei Kayin mipriha adama, Mincha Hashem. Kayin spontaneously takes the priha adama, the fruit of the land, and brings it as a gift to God. Amin chal Hashem. Hevel got the idea, it seems, from Kayin, and he brought 
Mibchorotzono, Rashi points out that he brings the choicest of his sheep, or Michel Vehem, and they're fat. And he also brings it, as, as it says, Vayisha Hashem el Hevel ve'el Minchato. Mincha, it doesn't make a difference if it's an animal or a, or a vegetable. It's all called Mincha. But what is the idea here? Kayan and Hevel each bring the Mincha is something brought as a sort of tithe or a representative sample from their livelihood, from the from the whatever they work in, which gives them their their wherewithal to live. This is their substance. This is their parnasa. In other words, mincha, which comes from uh, flour and oil, we talk about dagancha tiroshchavi yitzarecha, and certainly dagan tiroshvi yitzar, the mincha, uh, the mincha which is always mixed with oil, and the tirosh, the wine which becomes the nesachim, are a regular feature of the mizbeach. The mizbeach has not only animal sacrifices, but it always has representatives of Dagan tirosh v'itzar um, of of uh, wheat, of wine, of oil. Somebody once told me that our Shabbat table reflects that in the way that we also have the Shabbat candles of the oil, the Kiddush is the wine, and the Chalas are the wheat. I'm not sure whether that is the case, but uh, it's a nice parallel. Whichever way, the Mincha, uh, where usually with the Mincha it's not completely burnt. We just it's almost like a Shlamim. We take an Azkara. We take a comet, we take a small amount and give it to God. Seems to be representing the idea um, that my parnasa, my wherewithal, my livelihood, my ongoing sustenance is not something that I take for granted, but it's something that I thank God for. I come to the Beit Hamikdash to bring Korban Mincha to say, "Oh, thank you, God, for giving me, um, for letting me sign that that particular business deal. Thank you, God, because my investments succeeded." Thank you, God, because my business is, is running well. Uh, the mincha is something which relates to the world of, of, of business, of livelihood, of sustenance. Uh, when a farmer's field might have succeeded and had a bumper crop, maybe he would bring a korba mincha to, to the mingdash. Through all of this, I think what we've achieved today is to, to reframe korbanot. The idea isn't uh, the blood spilt on the Mizbeach. It isn't the image of an animal slaughtered. I also don't think that the Mincha has too much to do with the world of idolatry, as the Rambam suggested. In, uh, I don't think it's to do with repudiating the world of idolatry. It is true that I imagine that our sacrifices are entirely different. Our world of Karbanot is entirely different from the world of the pagan sacrifices of Egypt and Mesopotamia. No, our entire mode of korbanot is there lehit karev lashem to come close to God and since we have many different emotions to express to God sometimes emotions of desperation sometimes emotions of thanks sometimes uh, a plea sometimes an expression of man's insignificance um, sometimes something about our our livelihood and we haven't even dealt with our sense of guilt our chatat and our asham this is a symbolic language, a vehicle whereby we can have something concrete, have an actual ceremony, have a life cycle event, have an actual moment when we can feel that we are in some sense of contact with God. And through, through these events where we would have to specially 
take a step out of life, purify ourselves and go to this unique place in Yerushalayim, we would have an opportunity to focus on those emotions and focus on that which we wish to say to the Rabbanu Shalala. As I said in my opening lines, <clears throat> the world of Korbanot is not an easy one. We've learnt and we've adjusted our religion to live without the world of Korbanot. But I hope in the in the few in, in the short amount of time that we had today, we've managed to reframe Korbanot um, to help us understand that they are a very very powerful instrument for being able to express some very deep and heartfelt emotions to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, to be able to articulate fundamental human feelings and be able to have a vehicle to be able to transmit them to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Thank you very much and Shabbat Shalom.